You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies the sil- to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful to them? Human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Thank you, Katie. (laughs) Uh, For the rest of the summer, we are doing a brief series through some of the Psalms of the Old Testament. We're also going to have a few guest speakers. Ironically, as 70 of us go to the UK, next Sunday, the pastor of Reality Church London will be here um, preaching the word to you, so that, that'll be fun. Um, but it's just a great opportunity, as we often do in the summer, just to reflect on and look specifically at some of these psalms. They are powerful. And as we do today, look at Psalm 8, we're asking the question, how should I view myself? David teaches us in this beautiful psalm a way of understanding God that enables us to truly understand ourselves. So let's pray together now. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us that we might be transformed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have spoken. You have not left us in the dark regarding our purpose or our salvation. You've not only spoken, but you've acted. And I pray that we would be transformed by that, that the truth of your word would eliminate the lies that many of us are believing or the cheap substitutes of the culture that we're settling for. We pray that your truth would be the loudest voice in our own minds and our hearts and that we would live accordingly that you'd lead us to Jesus, that we become like him. And for those that do not yet know him, that today they would. So Spirit of God, would you speak? We ask together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, somewhere in our minds, we have the voice of a judge, a judge that examines our successes and failures, our actions and attitudes, and passes a verdict in our minds. And this verdict that we have determines how we view ourselves and whether or not our lives are worthwhile. Now, where does this voice come from? Well, the voice of this judge often comes from the voices of other people in our lives. It could be, for example, the voice of a harsh or loving parent. Could be the voice of a a bully or the voice of a comforting friend. Could be the voice of a hard-to-please employer or an encouraging sibling. Whatever it might be, we take in these voices because they're powerful. 
And here's how you know you're, you're listening to these voices. When you catch yourself finishing sentences like, when you do something stupid, what do you hear? If you're like me, that happens all the time. When you succeed, what's the voice in your head? When you're angry, what voice do you hear? When you're sad, what voice do you hear? The question is, whose outer voice became your inner voice? The reason I ask this and the reason it's important is because whatever that voice is that you're listening to shapes how you view yourself and how you view others. And if you do not recognize them, and if they are deceitful, then they will enslave you. Because all of us def desperately want to matter. We want to have guidance and direction for our lives. Where will we find it? What if we're looking in the wrong place? And what happens when we look in the right place? See, that's why the view presented by the psalmist here in Psalm chapter 8 is absolutely life-changing. Because the author of the psalm, the great King David, presents to us what it is like to be shaped by the only voice that matters. Not the voices of those in the world, but beyond it. God Almighty, who not only speaks the truth that should shape us, but also silences the lies of the enemy. See, David's psalm shows us something very beautiful and countercultural. And to put it in a statement, it would be this To know who we really are, we must behold who God really is. Not the other way around. The culture tells you to start with yourself and work out everything in the world from that beginning point. But David shows us that the opposite is true. We start with God. If we want to really know who we are and how we are to live in this world, we must behold who God really is. Because beyond how you feel, beyond what you've been told, beyond what you tell yourself, there's what God says. And that is what ultimately matters. Psalm 8 is incredible for, for many reasons. It is beautifully written. But it's also important because it addresses this pressing issue of identity. Like, who are we? How should I view myself? And how should I be living in light of that? So what did David understand? How does the revelation of God change the way that you regard yourself? I want to give you four statements from this beautiful psalm that should radically change the way that you view yourself. And the first is this. Psalm 8 teaches us to say that you are the creation of God. You are the creation of God. Now, what's interesting about Psalm 8 is that King David, the famed king of Israel, wrote this song off the back of a great success. Great military success, a great campaign. But notice what he doesn't do. David, off the heels of great success and achievement, does not go out in the countryside and say, I'm amazing. He does not make much of himself. That is not 
where his song begins. Of course, that is where we are told to begin by our culture. We're told to begin with yourself. If you're looking for identity, you look within. If you're looking for security and encouragement, you look within. You look to your resume. You look to the words of affirmation and praise of other people. That is how we're often told to get our sense of identity, especially here in America. Being a very Western country where we're all about what we can achieve, what we can accomplish, what we do. From elementary school onward, we're told like, you can do this, and if you do this, then you are of great value. So we're trained to make much of ourselves, especially in light of success, but that is not what David does. In contrast, The first word out of his mouth, and this is a fun little Bible note, no other psalm, out of 150 psalms, no other psalms begin this way. The first word out of David's mouth is Lord. It's the first word. Verse one and two. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Verse one begins with God. And this opening line prepares the ground for everything else that follows in this beautiful psalm. And in calling God Lord, David is using a familiar royal title, which showcases God's superiority over all of creation. But it also foreshadows something that David will say about us. More on that in a moment. But his voice is superior and silences all other voices who oppose him. So David begins with praise. But what is it that prompted this praise? Well, the answer is given in verse two and three. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. David goes out off the heels of great success. He goes out in the countryside and he looks around at all the beauty and the splendor And he says, all of this is the result of my God. His work and his power are what draws David to praise. He doesn't make much of himself. He makes much of God. See, this psalm is not only about God. It is about God and us. It's about how we relate to him and thus how we view ourselves. So he praises God. What prompted this? He looks out at the beauty of all that God created and then he considers humanity at the beginning of verse four. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? I want you to notice something beautiful and powerful about how David begins this as it pertains to identity. David is saying to us that our story begins with God. 
Whatever you think about yourself, whatever you think about humanity, we must start here. I am, you are, we are the creation of God. And therefore, my identity must come from him. So looking out at all creation, it leads him to ask this question, well, what is man? David doesn't go out there and say, I'm awesome, I'm incredible. He says, no, God, you created all this, you created me, but, but who am I in relation to all of this? Do you know what David is saying here? In asking the question and going on to say what he writes in this poem, he's saying poetically that it's not just enough to believe that, that God creates us, though that is key, or just that God exists, but that God cares. He is mindful of us. That is, his mind is full of us. Now, this is important because there are many in the world, uh, some of my friends, some of your friends, maybe some of you here this morning, who may believe that there's some kind of being, intelligent design to the universe, but it seems so cold, it seems so distant, it seems so out there. Like, yeah, surely when I look at the science and when I really think about it, like surely there's intelligent design, but maybe you're just a deist. Like, I believe there's a God, he created this beautiful clock, he wound it up and he just let it run in the universe. Now, if that's the end of the story, I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly motivated to praise for that. Like, imagine the psalm, psalmist started out like, Praise you, O distant, cold being, who is unaware of my life because I'm so insignificant and small. Like, that's not awesome. But David, when he looks at the heavens, the magnitude of the universe, then he says, wow, the fact that you who created all this are mindful of us, are mindful of me. Well, that's staggering. See, here's why that's important for us and for our culture. If you only look at the magnitude of the universe, how do I know that my life even matters? Without moving any farther than this, what do you really have? Science alone can't answer this. Science alone cannot declare or reveal your value. And some of the brightest minds have understood this. Uh, some of you may remember Neil Postman, um, he was a professor and a person who prized very highly rationality and science. But even he said that the secular story that we're believing, that we just create our own meaning or we just got to follow the science and then we'll understand our meaning, even he knew that it was a sham. Listen, listen to his own words. He says, in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin? Science answers, probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end? Science answers, probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. Let's get practical on this. You were not the result of an accident. Your purpose in the world is not the result of an accident. So think about how this works out. 
both negatively and positively. If we are not the creation of God, that means that the burden of our identity and purpose rests squarely upon us. We've got to fabricate it. We've got to manufacture it. And that leads to an incredible cycle of arrogance and despair. When things are going well and you're crushing it and you're doing good in school and your job, you're like, yes, I give myself meaning. But when you fail, you're like absolutely undone. And in our culture, we're especially conflicted. Because on the one hand, think about how we're raised in school. Like I was told, basically, that I was a bundle of biological impulses. San Francisco Bay Area for you. Where are we heading? Well, we're heading into the decay of the cosmos. Go get a job. <laughs> Your life, you could be president. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is such weird advice. So when a child answers, okay, if I'm here by accident, if I'm going to end by accident, where do I find meaning? And everyone's like, esteem yourself. Okay. Hey, we look to science for everything else, but when it comes to my value and my identity, it's like, there's no basis for it. But David shows us another way, the true way. You were gloriously made by a loving God. And that changes everything. It means our identity begins with God. And therefore, we must put him first. A.W. Tozer, wonderful Christian author, simply said it like this. We are called to an everlasting preoccupation with God. Friends, David doesn't start with himself. He starts with God. This is a lesson for you as an individual, as well as a lesson for us as a church. When we think about our lives individually, and when we think about us as a church, we are called to an everlasting preoccupation with God. But it is very easy for us and for our church to forget this. And so he goes on to say, the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. See, the world, it reverses it. Have a low opinion of God and a high opinion of yourself, but the irony is we're supposed to have a high opinion of God, but when we do, that's when we really understand our purpose. I am, you are, the creation of God. But what's God's opinion of us? He thinks about us, but what does he think about us? Some of you are like, oh, I know God thinks about me. I'm pretty sure he thinks about me. I just don't know what he thinks. If you view yourself in light of the truth of God's word, you need to know, number one, that you are the creation of God, but secondly, you are the beloved of God. Far from the insignificance a person might feel when they look out at the vast expanse of the universe, look at what the psalmist says about what we mean to God. He says in verse four, again, what is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for them? And in making this statement, David shows us that the one who created us also cares for us. That sense of love and care, you can't generate that for yourself, right? Even though the narrative of our culture is just that. 
right? I gotta love myself, I gotta, you know, I've gotta care for my, myself first. That's kind of the mantra of our culture. It doesn't give you what you think it will give you. You cannot generate this. But inevitably, you're gonna look somewhere or to someone. You're gonna look to your job. But let me tell you right now, if you haven't figured out it already, your job is not gonna care for you unconditionally. <laughs> or you'll look to find it in another relationship. They'll never fulfill that gaping hole in your heart that can only be filled by God. And the good news, friends, is when we look to God's word and we see what he says, God doesn't give us these generic, empty affirmations like, you've got this. <laughs> God, what do you think about me? I, you, I don't know, you're great. Okay. <laughs> like it's, it's so much more than that. God cares for us. He created us and he cares for us. Friends, do you see what that means? It means that you have an irreducible value because you are created by and cared for by Almighty God. You have an irreducible value that no one, not even yourself, can ever diminish or actually take away. No matter what you say, no matter what you think, God's mind is full of you and his concern is for you. And he doesn't only say this, he shows this in the way that he provides for you. The food on your table, the breath in your lungs, the sun in the sky and the rain that falls on the field. God cares about our lives, even down to the most minute detail. I love that one of the other Psalms says, even the numbers of our, the hairs on our head are counted by God. He knows, he cares. And in a world where the lies of the devil would seek to distort your identity, either to say that you are God or that you have no value at all, or that the world gives you these cheap imitations of true identity, all based on what you can or cannot accomplish, your best defense is the worship of God. The worship of God, like David in Psalm 8, is the best defense and reinforcement of your true identity. I am the creation of God and I am the beloved of God. He created me and he cares for me. See, the two go together. Glorifying God also means enjoying his care. That might come as a surprise to some of us because we often think of glorifying God as it can't have any kind of like tangible benefit to us. But I love how the Westminster Catechism put it famously. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. Enjoy his care and his guidance, the truth of his word, what he has done for us. Part of how we glorify and magnify God is by enjoying his care for us. Because it speaks of our identity. You are the creation of God and you are the beloved of God. That means that you are most yourself or who you were intended to be when you are centered on God. 
That's not a message you're gonna hear today in our world. You are most yourself when you are centered on God, magnifying him and enjoying his care. But this extends just beyond a general sense of inherent dignity because David then goes on to talk about our purpose. How do you view yourself? When you go to God's word, you learn that you are the creation of God, you are the beloved of God, but third, you are also the called of God. You have a purpose in this world. We are valued, and therefore we are to value all that is around us. Notice how David then begins to speak of humanity in relation to creation. Verse five through eight. You have made them, human beings, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers, there's that royal word, over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim the paths of the sea. See, this section of Psalm 8 is essentially an echo of the creation narrative we find in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. And the implications are staggering. Notice that royal language there. We are rulers over, we are meant to, to rule over God's creation. Theologians call this vice regency. We are vice regents of God. We are not God, but he created us to represent him like an ambassador in this world. He's given us a purpose to reflect him to all of creation. We, more than any other created thing, are given the fullest ability out of all creation to reflect the glory of God. That's why we're often called the crown of creation. As David says here, you crowned them with glory and honor. <laughs> that is a statement. We're the crown of God's creation. For those of you struggling with a sense of, of worth, about like, oh, I'm worth nothing, and then you're looking out to your social circle to kind of give you value, that's not where you're gonna find it. Go to the word of God. God's like, I created you, and you are the crown, along with all of humanity, the crown of my creation. That's what he's saying in verse five. You were created with such a high and noble state that were just lower than the angels, the psalmist says. For we are different than all of creation. We long to learn and to know and to relate and to be re related to and to love and to last. That's why we say we were created in the image of God. We have this capacity for these things. But still notice, so David's getting this sense of worth and dignity and value and even purpose, but still notice that the subject line in all of these sentences is God. You have made, you have crowned, you have set. The subject is still God. What gives us dignity, what gives us purpose and value is not anything that we have done for ourselves, but what God has done for us. Therefore, my 
purpose comes from God. Your purpose comes from God. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with the, where is my purpose? Where do I find that? Where should I look? Friends, look no further than what God has said about you. For he created you with a purpose. And so I want you to see that the glory of God is actually connected to the glory of your purpose. Let me put it this way. The more I see the greatness of God, the more I see the greatness of my purpose in the way that I treat other people, in the way that I love other people, in the way that I serve other people. In fact, this truth is really the, the cornerstone of so much of what our society benefits from today, compassion and justice and care for human beings. Why? Because we believe that we're not just a bundle of biological impulses. We believe that humans are created in the image of God and regardless of where you're from or, or what you've done, that you have a value because you're a creator you, you were created by God from womb to tomb, from the moment that you were formed in the mother's womb. We believe not only that that's life in the womb, we believe that is a person in the womb. See, oftentimes the debate on this is, well, yes, technically there's life, but the debate is not so much about life, it's about personhood. See, the, the world would have you believe that when you're conceived, well, that's a potential person, but the believer says, no, that's a person with potential. It begins in the womb, and it goes all the way to the tomb, caring for the elderly, caring for the vulnerable, caring for the weak, caring for the poor. Why? Because we believe with a sense of awe and reverence that another human being is the creation of God, the image of God. I know oftentimes we, when we think of the glory of God, uh, we go into creation. Some of you are like outdoorsmen and outdoors women, and you've got your gear, you've got your stuff, and like you love it, right? You're just out there and you're like, yes, glory! Um, if you haven't guessed yet, like I'm not particular, I'm not much of an outdoorsman. <laughs> I think I've camped like once in my life. I know that might get me kicked out of Ventura County, but we're here, so deal with it. And yes, we see glory in creation. But do you know where you can see the most glory of God in creation per square inch? A city. Why? Because it's a bunch of humans. You're like, oh, that's why I leave. Well, <laughs> you need a little change and you're like, I hate the humans. I'm gonna see the glory of God in creation. The next time you're out and about in the busyness of where, I don't even care if you're at Vaughn's, you're like, the glory of God in creation. You can go up to people and say, Imago Dei. That's Latin, image bearer of God. It's just, it's a good conversation starter. I don't know, try it. See what happens. There's an inherent value and therefore my purpose is to display that value in the way that I love and I serve other people. If I understand that my role is to reflect God and his glory, this will shape the way that I treat people. That's why, for example, in the New Testament, the book of James, the, the author, when he's saying, hey, if you really have faith in God, 
Show me your care for the orphans and, and the widows. Show me how you care for those who are hungry and those who are in, in need. Show me how you care for your brothers and sisters both inside the church and the men and women outside of the church. It's absolutely connected. And so in this journey of finding purpose, and some of you right now, you're like questing. You're like, I'm trying to find my purpose. Here it is. It is precisely in surrendering to God that I discover my purpose. And so obedience then is how I live out of my true identity. Obedience. It's a beautiful word in the Bible because it means I'm living in accordance with what God has created me to be and to do. The greater God is to you, the more you dive in to what scripture says about how you are to live, the more you yield to God's glorious purpose, the work of the Holy Spirit in your, your life who gifts you and enables you to live that out. But sadly, when we look around at humanity, we don't come away with this general idea like all of humanity is functioning great. That's not our general takeaway when we read the morning news. Not all have obeyed this call. We ourselves have not obeyed this call. The Bible says all of us have sinned. We've rebelled against the very one who created us, ran the other way, and everything's broken. Everything's broken. In fact, even here in Psalm 8, David reminds us that all is not well. All is not right in the world. In verse 2, he speaks of enemies and oppressors. And the Bible says that enemies are those who have turned away from God. So he created us to live in a world that is all ruled by him and everything's ordered underneath him and that we are to reflect that to everyone else around us in beautiful harmony. That's what it was in the garden in the beginning of the Bible. But sin has ruined everything. So where do we go? We're like, okay, Psalm 8, it's great. David, you're cute. You've got this idealistic view, like everything's great. Oh, Lord, our Lord, so majestic. Like human beings are amazing. And you're like, David, are you kidding? Have you spoken to another human today? Because <laughs> I don't think you'd be writing Psalm 8 right now <laughs> if you did. So what do we do when we look around and say, well, all is not right in the world? I don't see everything placed under God's feet or under our feet in the way that we're supposed to care for everything around us. Well, that is why in order to find security that you need, you must look to where Psalm 8 is pointing. Let me explain what I mean. Verse 6 says everything is placed under our feet, but then we look around and we don't see it. That's precisely what the New Testament book of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, it acknowledges the fallen state of the world. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at present, here's the key line, we do not see everything subject to them. Meaning everything is not as it should be. So where do we look then? Where do we look? Well, there's a hint in this psalm itself. Two hints, actually. The first hint is in verse two. The phrase, 
Through the praise of infants, you establish a stronghold. Pause. Have you ever thought, if you're familiar with this verse, how ridiculous that sounds? Just think about it. Or maybe if you're hearing it for the first time, you're like, through happy babies comes strength? Like what? Like if you have enemies all around you and someone's like, what's the solution? I know, happy babies. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a stronghold for sure. Like have you just paused to think how ridiculous that sounds? Like, God, we need strength. God's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna establish stronghold. How, oh Lord? Through the mouths of infants. You're like, oh. I was thinking giants and like swords, shields, but no, yeah, I'll take happy infants, that's fine. It's kind of a like for like. The image of infants is a picture of the most vulnerable of all. And yet they are able to become a stronghold. That is, even from weakness, God is able to overcome the enemy. And so what David says in that little verse is a theme that is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible, that even from weakness, God is able to overcome the enemy. That is remarkable. That's the first hint of where we should look. The second hint is in verse four. When it says, what is mankind that you are mindful of and what are human beings that you care for them? The Hebrew word in care for them is literally visit them. Shout out to the old King James, which translates it. What is man that thou visiteth him? Say that word fast three times. Visiteth. God visits us. What? God will establish strength through weakness and he will visit the people that need help and have turned from him. How is that the answer? Well, that's precisely the answer. Because friends, these two hints point towards the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is exactly how God would come and rescue us, not just from the danger outside of us, but from the danger within us. God himself, the eternal son of God, would come into our world, born as an infant, in frailty and in weakness. He would lower himself, assume a lower place in creation, and live an obedient life all the way to the cross where he would die in our place for our sin, for the penalty that we deserve, to take our shame, to take our guilt, and to rise again so that we could be saved. And so the dignity given to us by God, though tainted by sin, is restored to us through Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who secures all these promises for us so that when we're in this world and we're seeking to know God and reflect him, but all is not right and it looks like it's a mess 
and we don't see everything subdued, and we don't see everything in order, and we certainly don't see everything under our feet or under God's feet. Hebrews nails it, not only in verse eight that we read a moment ago, but verse nine, it says, but we do see Jesus. See what the author of Hebrews is doing there? It's an echo of the psalm. It says, we don't see everything in its right place, but you know what we do see right here and now? We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see, the author of Hebrews is saying the ultimate fulfillment of the language here in Psalm 8 is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one that brings order to what was broken, healing for what is wounded and hope for what is hopeless so that you and I can say, not only I am the creation of God and I am the beloved of God and I am the called of God, but lastly, I am the redeemed of God. When you look to Jesus and trust in Jesus, you can say today, I am the redeemed of God because when Jesus went to the cross, his mind was full of us. His mind was full of us. So how do I view myself when I fail? When I fall? When I stumble? When I sin against God? When I sin against others and his purposes for me? When I sin against the people around me? See, those things are real. We're never asked to pretend that they're not. In fact, we're told in scripture to confess those things but we're to confess those things knowing that we can and will be forgiven because of Jesus and renewed. And that is why, like the psalmist here, our praise, just like our salvation, begins and ends with God, not with us. And so he ends in verse nine, with Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our hope rests in him. He is my glory, and he is mindful of me. The question is, am I mindful of him? See, many of us, you know what's funny? We doubt whether God cares. We doubt whether God's love. The, the Bible could not be more clear. God's like, I created you. I providentially orchestrated your life. I literally sent my son to live on your behalf, die the death you should have died, risen again on the third day to promise you new creation to bring you into glory. And you're like, I don't know if he cares. <laughs> I don't know if he really loves me. I'm mocking myself, by the way. Like, one thing goes wrong. I'm like, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Things are tight financially. I don't even know if he exists. I'm like, what's happening right now? But friends, if we would take what the Bible says about the love of God for us, seriously, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. That's a statement that you should dwell on and trip out on for the rest of your life. That's what Andrew Murray did, famous theologian and serial devotional writer. <laughs> listen to this paragraph. Just listen to what he says and allow it to wash over you as we prepare for worship. Andrew Murray says, as one of his redeemed ones, you are his delight and all his desire is to you with the longing of a love which is stronger than death 
and which many waters cannot quench. His heart yearns for you, seeking your fellowship and love. Were it needed, he could die again to possess you. As the Father loved the Son, so Jesus loves you. His life is bound up in yours. You are to him inexpressibly more indispensable and precious than you can ever know. You are one with himself. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. What a love. Yes, there will be pain and difficulty. You will fail Others will fail, but we see Jesus. And the fact that he came and visited us, died for us and rose, is all the assurance we need. And so our identity begins and ends with him. His mind is full of us. Is our mind full of him? You know, Jesus is not ashamed that you are his child if your faith is in him. Hebrews says it in that same chapter. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. No one can take your value. No one can take your worth. No one can take your future. No one can take your standing before God if your faith is in Christ. If your faith is in Christ, you can say today, I am the creation of God, the beloved of God, the called of God, the redeemed of God. And though my sin may be great, my Savior is greater. If you're here this morning, if you've not received Jesus, believe upon him today. Say, Jesus, save me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what you have done. Trust in him today. He does not want you to be eternally separated from him but to be forever with him. But it requires for you to repent and to turn from your sin and to trust in his finished work. And for us as a church, to view ourselves rightly, we need to behold God truthfully. So I'm inviting you this morning to do three things, to pray, to preach, and to praise. You need to pray with others. You need to preach these truths to your own heart. And you need to praise God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what I'm calling you to do. Pray with others this morning. Pray this psalm. Pray the truths of this psalm. Invite the Spirit of God into your circumstance and situation. And preach to your heart as we prepare to receive communion that this is what is true. All these other voices, all these other ideas, my failures, my successes, the the false wisdom of the world, the lies of Satan, there's only one voice that matters, that's the voice of God, and you're retelling this truth that you've heard to your own heart. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. I belong to him. That is the truth. And then we praise him, and we praise him together. Because we are most fully ourselves when we are most centered on him. Our identity begins and ends with God. Our purpose begins and ends with God. Our our salvation begins and ends with God. Our motivation begins and ends with God. And so we can say with David, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that even now we would put you in the center, 
that we would neither seek to puff ourselves up or beat ourselves up, but rather we would look up and say, your voice is the only voice that matters. I pray that you would dispel any lies that we're believing or cheap imitations that we're substituting for how we view ourselves or what we're supposed to be doing. And I pray that we'd glory in the fact that you created us, you care for us, you called us, and you've saved us. I pray that we would delight in that. You told us you are mindful of us. And so right now I pray that we would be mindful of you so that our minds will be at peace and we will know how we ought to live. Spirit of God, move. Now we ask in Jesus' name, amen.